Good morning. Have a seat, you guys. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 86. If you don't have a Bible, we would like to give you one. There's several in the back. Um, even if you have a Bible at home and not here, or not an ESV version, which is what we preach from, feel free to take that with you as our gift to you. Um, let's dive right in, because I got, got a lot to get to this morning. I got like eight pages of notes. I'm, I'm kidding. Um, so I've said it here before, and uh, I know that I'll say it again, and I've, I've said it many times in many different venues, but this, here's a, a fact, two facts we're going to kind of base everything from, the, the, the founding point for where we'll be and where we'll go this morning. First of all, if our security in Christ is complete and can't move and can't be shaken, that we believe that it is, that Scripture teaches that it is, the only real tool in the hands of the enemy is to get you to believe something that's not true. All right? I want us to, to move from that foundation. The only tool that he has, and let me, let me be clear, we have a very real and very present enemy here on this earth, and his name is Satan, and he has people, has demons that, that do his work. The only real weapon they have is to get you to believe something that's not true. And if that's the case, the only real defense that we have against his attacks is to know and believe and know the truth. All right? So those are sort of the foundations we'll come from, is that one, the only real weapon that he has is to get us to believe something that's not true, and two, our defense to that is to know the truth. All right? You go into a test, you're taking an exam in school, if you're really not prepared, you don't really know the answers, it's really hard and you can get tricked by questions. If you really know the material, if you're completely confident in your ability to know what you've studied, then you're, you're not tricked by a professor's tricks on an exam. That's what we aim to do. And this, this is probably, in, in my mind, the biggest reason for this year of praying the Psalms. That we've, You've heard me say that phrase. I've, I've tweeted, I've blogged about praying the Psalms because the Psalms are short and memorable phrases. They're filled with short, memorable phrases that teach us the truth so that in the midst of it's, it's, it's Thursday and, and maybe sermon or maybe Bible study is far off from your mind and the enemy is attacking with his lies, you have short, memorable phrases that you can depend upon to defeat the enemy, all right? I want to talk, before we get into the heart of, of the message and the heart of Psalm 86, I want to talk about um, four beliefs that we tend to have or ditches that we tend to, to steer into um, for these beliefs that, that Satan tends to, to push us. Um, first, we tend to believe that God does not have our best interest in mind. That's, an, that's a, a tool of the enemy for, that he uses to get you to believe something that's not true. That somehow, some way, in some capacity, God does not have our best interest in mind. 
And any time in Scripture, when we read the phrase, God is good, it's attacking, it's defeating this belief. Because if God is really good, he's for you. He's got your best interest in mind. And we'll, we'll read that later in Psalm 86. The second thing, God, we tend to believe that God cannot provide the most joy for us. And this is something that's really subtle. And all these things, we can lay these out and see that there are lies. But this one is really subtle for us. It's very nuanced. And that when we are confronted with temptation to the sin that, that trips us up consistently, when we're confronted with that temptation, when we choose to give in to that sin, we're believing this. I can provide for my own joy and my own happiness better than God can. We don't believe that God has our best interest in mind and we don't believe that he's able to come through on that. That saying no to that temptation in that moment is trusting that God is who he says he is. And when we fall there, we're believing the lie that Satan is telling us. Again, he only has one real tool to get us to believe something about God or ourselves that's not true. We tend to believe that he doesn't have our best interests in mind. We tend to believe that he cannot provide the most joy for us. Then, those are about God, and now we begin to believe lies about ourselves. We tend to believe that we are unworthy of God's love. I know what I did five minutes ago. I know what I did yesterday. I know what's in my past. I know who I am. I know, given given a temptation, what I'm going to do. I know this about myself. As a result, I cannot accept your love. This is a, a, a lie that we believe about God and we believe about ourselves, that I am somehow unworthy of the love of God. And this cripples us and allows us to, it causes damage and strain to relationships. The fourth thing, we tend to believe there's something in us that has earned God's love. And this is really dangerous. This also is, is very nuanced to think that somehow your presence here or your, your connecting with the church or, or that, that you serve your neighbor or that you do something good, that somehow that makes God owe you something. There's a verse in Romans that says, what have, what have I done that you should repay me? Who am I that you should pay attention to me? That is only, the only thing that we have is by the grace of God. But here, I want to dig into Psalm 86 because it, it, it attacks every one of these, every one of these things. And this is a, a key why we've, we've been preaching this pray the Psalms thing, because truth is the antidote, antidote for lies. If we know the truth, we can spot a lie. If we, it, it's like somebody coming and trying to impersonate my wife. All right? Somebody coming up and say, hey, I'm Jen. No, you're not. I know what my life looks like. And it's silly, right? You're chuckling at that. But ultimately, that's what digging deeply into the truth of God and, more importantly, digging deeply into the Psalms and their quick, beautiful phrasing can help us to spot, to know, and understand the truth so that when these tendencies to believe lies come upon us, we can defeat them like that. And that's why I want us to, to think hard about these things, to pray them, to study them, to write them down in places where we'll remember them. Dry erase on your, 
on your shower wall. Sticky note your, your, your steering wheel. Simple, quick phrases. And we're going to deal with these phrases today. And, and this is something that, that we're going to do. Psalm 86 has 17 verses in it. We're dealing with five this morning. I think one of the problems that we have when we come to a psalm, especially a psalm, is we believe, I'm going to go read Psalm 86 today. So we think we've got to read all of Psalm 86. But sometimes, in my own study, especially this year, when, when I'm thinking hard about praying the psalms, I'll, I'll be on not just a couple of verses, not even just a verse, but a simple three-word phrase, and I'll be there for a week or a month. And I want to give you permission there. We think somehow we're not finished with Psalm 86 until we read the whole thing and study the whole thing. But we can, we can error there and that we somehow have to see this whole thing. But God is wanting to press in on us with particular phrases. And this Psalm 86 is, is a beautiful example of that. So we're only going to deal with the first five verses of Psalm 86. So let me read them and then we'll walk slowly through each phrase. And I, I want to I want to give you permission as we go through, as we walk with each phrase, to, to just check out for a second. If something jumps out at you, a phrase in, say, Psalm 86 two, check out for a second and just think about it. Meditate. Consider. Think deeply about each particular word. And that's the, that's the beautiful part about the Psalms, that each, each and every word is just waiting to be open and explode a truth to defeat a lie in your heart. Psalm 86, the first five verses. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Let's pray, and then we'll deal with each one of these verses. God, I come before you, and I ask of you to speak your truth into our lives and into our hearts. God, I pray that you would explode the truth of this, your word, into our hearts and change us, Father. Give it to us as weapons to defeat the enemy, Father. You are awesome and mighty and powerful. You are good. You are forgiving. You are perfect. God, I pray that the truth of your word would explode into our hearts today. In Christ's name. All right, so verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. This verse, this first phrase, phrase here, incline your heart, really sets the heart of the reader and the author to God. Do you see that? Incline your ear, O Lord. Help me connect with you. Pay attention to what I'm saying. We're setting our heart. And then what comes behind that? Incline your ear and answer me, for I am poor and needy. More setting the heart on who God is. Um, if truth helps us to combat 
lies. And one of the lies is we about ourselves and who we are in Christ and, and that we can somehow earn Christ's love or somehow we are in, we somehow don't deserve his love or, or any of those things. There, there's truth in that. But ultimately here, what we're seeing that David, who's writing this psalm, says that I am poor and needy. It sets our heart. Anytime we come to God seeking truth, anytime we come to God seeking relationship, this idea of being poor and needy is huge for us. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the same connection that David is having here with with God. It's Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is setting the tone for the relationship. I have nothing to offer you. I'm fully aware if I have, of the fact that I have nothing to offer you. And the response of God to us coming to him, acknowledging the fact that we are poor and needy, is to give us the kingdom of heaven. Let's put on the brakes a second. Because us coming poor and needy and us having the kingdom of heaven can very easily be confused with some sort of prosperity gospel. And I don't want you to hear that at all. And I gave you permission to, to check out if a phrase connects with you. Check back in here. All right? This is not prosperity. The kingdom of heaven. Here's the definition. When God says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When David says, I am poor and needy, and God connecting with that, here's what that means to us. It is pre-sin, garden-like activity, Adam and Eve. All right? It is perfect peace, shalom, purpose, perfect relationship. All that we were designed and created to be is present in kingdom of heaven. And that doesn't mean cars and money and stuff and fancy houses and any of that stuff that prosperity gospel wants to teach to you. What that means is there is unhindered and pure relationship with a perfect and holy God, which is what you were created for. Do you want to know your purpose and what you were created for? Go read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. What is there is what you were created for. And what you were created for is perfect, unhindered relationship. You are fully known and you fully know God. And you are fully known and you fully know man. That is what we were created for. That is what heaven is going to be. There is nothing, no strife, no animosity, no no lies, no deceit, no deception, no difference, nothing between you and God and you and man. That is shalom. That is peace. That's the rhythm that we were designed to live in. And when we believe something about God or about somebody else that's not true, we create barriers there. When sin happens between you and and man, barriers. When sin happens between you and God, barriers. And the kingdom of heaven is the removal of those barriers. And it starts very simply with you realizing who you are. Poor and needy. And that's the setting of the heart here. All that comes for the rest of Psalm 86 is predicated on that. The reader, the author, the hearer of this psalm connecting with this notion that I'm poor and I'm in need. In me is not the ability to battle the lies of the enemy. I need your truth to come and change me. This is poor and needy. This is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 2. Preserve my life for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you, for you are my God. When I read this verse, I thought to myself, wait a second. 
That contradicts what he just said. He just said, I'm poor and needy, and then he just said, I'm godly. One of, one of the biggest turnoffs for me is somebody wanting you to pay attention to their godliness. That's pharisaical, and it drives me crazy. Hey, look at me. I'm godly. Wait, didn't, isn't that what he just said? And so I wrestled with that. for a long, Psalm 86, we actually had a community group, and we were going through uh, Pursuit of God. We talked about Psalm 86 for a while, and we wrestled with this phrase. What does this mean? And so that caused me to go and study deeply what this means. And this word godly here is very nuanced. There's, there's a lot of subtleties to it. And what it ultimately means is, in its, in its context, what this word means is he is a faithful man. And, and again, that's another like religious word that I want I want to be faithful. I want people to think that I'm faithful. I want attention to my religiousness when we think of faithful on the surface. But ultimately, what faithful means in this context, what godly means in this context is David is a man who has completely and utterly thrown himself on the mercy of God. So many times we think of of faithful as someone who is true to their word. And, And that's a part of it. But the nuance of this word is this surrendering faithfulness. You connect with that? There's more to it than just, I trust you. There is, I bet my life on the trust that I have for you. That's what this word means. When, he, when David calls himself a godly man, he says, I got nothing unless you give it to me. I got nothing. I'm giving myself completely to you. All my hopes, all my dreams, all those you've given me charge to, to lead, for me, faithfulness, godliness, for I'm a godly man, would look like this. God, I can't lead my children. I can't lead my wife. I need you to do it. I give them completely to you. I can't describe for you the, the way that I love my wife and the way that I love my children and the hopes and plans and dreams that I have for them. For me to be this kind of godly is to say, God, take them away from me and you own them. This is what, it, for I am a godly man, I give that completely to you. The other thing is this church. I don't, it's within me, within Rick, it's not the ability to lead North Church. Godliness in this context, this word, this nuanced word, faithfulness is, God, I they're too, this place is too important. North County is too important. These people are too important for me to screw it up. I trust you to do it. Guide me as I guide them. I follow you and they follow me. God, would you birth it out of that? That's what this godliness means. And I want you to see this in the context of what we talked about before. Of This is a way to defeat the lies of the enemy. All right? And this is intentional. Look up here at the screen. Psalm 86.2 at the bottom. At the top are all the lies we tend to believe. They're there as we read through each one of these verses. Those lies are going to be up there because 86.2 defeats those lies. I believe some, this is very specifically for I'm godly is defeating. We tend to believe that there's something in us that has earned God's love. That's what it means. This word godly is, is directly defeating that. There's nothing in you Nothing in you that deserves any attention from God. And to be godly is to be aware of that and to throw yourself on the mercy of God. Let's keep going with this verse. Save your servant who trusts in you, for you are my God. If we fully 
believe this godly word and fully throw ourselves on to God and his faithfulness and his abilities to to change us, we call him God. I I want you to to see that. We we throw the word God around. Watch any champion of any sporting event. They're going to go thank God. Who are they talking about? I'd really love to, to an interviewer one day to press into that. Okay, what do you mean? Who do you believe? Who do you believe God to be? Who did you just think? And I, I, I love that. And I would love for us to really, tr- when we utter the phrase, even in our mind, when we think the idea God, what are, do we understand that that means He's in control of everything? When we, when you say you are my God, what are you saying? When David says this. You are my God. That's, that's truth. Defeating lies. You are in control and you are good. And the things that happen to me are because you intend them to happen to me so that I can draw further into the kingdom of heaven. So that I can remove the impurities of sin of this world and of my heart so that I can have a more pure relationship with you. When we say you are my God, that's what we say. It's big and it's worth spending a month on to have that phrase ringing in your brain over and over and over again. You are my God. You are my God. When our boss goes nuts and screams at us for something stupid and we don't understand, you are my God is the first thing that pops into our head. When our spouse drives us crazy or when our children drive us crazy or when our friends or our neighbors or life or the bank drives us crazy, you are my God. This is a tool in your hands to defeat the enemy. Verse 3, and this one is, is unbelievable, so great. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all the day long. Simply here, that phrase, be gracious to me. Just is God, is, I'm sorry, is David telling God to be himself? I was uh, reading an article online this week about, um, pardon, this is a, a sports analogy, pardon me, I, I, I don't like to do those, this is really good. Uh, the Indiana Pacers, Larry Bird is from Indiana, right? He played for Boston, but he's from Indiana, and, and he is a, a president of, of their organization. And, like, there was one day where they're all practicing on one end of the floor, the Pacers themselves, and, and Bird comes in, and just there's a ball laying there, and so he picks it up and just starts shooting. And apparently, here's what happened. All the team that was on one end of the floor just stopped and started watching Larry Bird, who's, what is he, like 55 or whatever, just shoot. And they talked to the team afterwards, and he said, what's it like watching Larry Bird shoot? And one guy said, it's like watching a fish practice to swim. That's what it, it we're born to do. And that's what this phrase, be gracious, means. Just telling God, God, would you just be God? Do you see, when we call upon the graciousness of God, We're asking him to be himself. God can't help but be filled with grace. It's what he is. And this is the point, is that, like, 
This is David preaching to himself, motivating his own heart. Do you really think that God needs David to tell him to be gracious in order to be gracious? No. This is David preaching to his heart, motivating his own heart to trust that God is filled with grace and will give him things that he does not deserve. Again, defeating one of the lies that we believe. God is good, God is able, and God will give things to you that you don't deserve. Be gracious to me, O oh God. Another great phrase to dry erase on your, on your shower door, to sticky note to your bed, to wake up every morning to. My iPhone has a little thing you can label your alarm, and that pops up every time you turn it on. A bunch of you guys have that feature on your phones. Put that on your phone. Every, every, every morning you wake up. Be gracious to me, oh God. And that ringing in your head all the day. When the hardship of life, when the enemy's lies, when sin encroaches, be gracious to me, oh God. These are tools God has given us. We ought to be really excited about that. God has given us tools. When we... Allow the lies of the enemy to push us into the depths. Psalm 86 still exists. Be gracious to me, O God, is begging to explode into your brain and all that it is. For to you do I cry out all the day. Set like eight alarms. All of them. Every two hours. Reminding you, be gracious to me, O oh God. Be gracious to me, O oh God. Man, if we really spent all of our waking hours, we spent 16, 18 hours a day with that in the front of our brain, God, you are gracious and you are willing to give it away. Be gracious to me, O oh God. How, many, how often do you think we'd really believe the lies, these we tend to believe that God doesn't have our best interests in mind. We tend to believe that he cannot provide our joy for us. We tend to believe that somehow we're unworthy of God's love. We tend to believe that somehow he owes us something. If we believe, if we say these things to ourselves over and over and over again, if we utilize the truth of God, this is never or rarely going to hurt us. Verse 4. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. This word, gladdened, is a really cool word. Um, it, it, it is the same root that's in this word is the same root that's in joy. And it is basically what David says when he says, gladden my heart is make me happy. That sounds really fun. And a lot of this stuff, and, and I, I'm fully aware that I tend to be a little serious and, 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 and push a little hard into the, you know, the deep, hard things of God. And, and I talk a lot about how God uses suffering and, and all those things. And, and it, 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 it's just really deep and thoughtful. But this is, this is very surface and very beautiful. Just God, make me happy. Make me happy. But there's, 
David doesn't just spend all the time here on the surface with this word gladden. Make me joyous. Make me happy. He says, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. So this gladdening idea is pressing into us. And he says, make me happy. But then he goes deeper. It says, press it into the depths of my soul. I lift up my soul to you to make happy. Right? There's, there's more to it than just this surface, this outer layer of us. Don't just make the outer layer of us happy. Make the depths of us happy. Give us joy in the core of us, in the deepest recesses of us. Give us happy. And here's, here's the interesting part. Another thing to, to, to defeat one of our tendencies to believe lies is look at who is being called to do this. Gladden my soul, O Lord. It doesn't, you don't have, you have the ability to make yourself happy. You can go do something that's going to put a smile on your face and make you happy. But you don't have the ability to make your soul happy from, a, from this word standpoint, this joyous, to really bring deep, earth-changing joy to your soul. There are things in this earth that are, here's, this, I've reflected a lot in this message about this word aletheia. It's a Greek word. It doesn't appear in, the, in Psalm 86. Greek is New Testament. Hebrew is Old Testament. It's a Greek word. But it's, it brings, this idea of aletheia is profound here. And aletheia is, uh, I'm the way, the truth in the life that Jesus said. Anytime, almost every time the word truth happens in Scripture in the New Testament, it's this word aletheia. And it means that which is true under any matter of consideration. No matter what happens in this world, this is going to be true. So there's no amount of, of death, no amount of happiness, no amount of, of joy or sadness, or, or an earthquake is not going to change the truth here. It is solid and unchanging. And here, this idea of, of the heart being gladdened, of this happiness happening in this depth of our soul, is this idea that it cannot change. Circumstances on this planet cannot change the joy that God will give to us. And it does not, the ability to have it, to hold it, to experience it, to oppress it into your soul, does not reside in you. It resides in God alone, and we have to trust God to give it to us. We have to ask God for it. God, make us joyful. I hate my job, but God, make me joyful. I hate my situation. God, make me joyful. Make me happy. I hate where you have me. This is hard. I have a friend who has cancer, and I've, I've talked about him before. His name is Jason. He's a great man, uh, lives in North County. He's fantastic. I, I love him dearly. And he, he got cancer in his neck, and they beat it, and they moved to his lungs, and then he beat it. And then now we find out this week the cancer's in his brain, and he's in real, real deep trouble. But the dude is happy. And that ability to be happy in the midst of that, he's got a, he's got a daughter who's about to be a freshman in high school. I can't imagine parenting that and being gladdened in that. I can't imagine it. It doesn't reside in Jason. It doesn't reside in you or I. It resides in God, and he gives it freely. 
That's be gracious is give me that gladdening. I don't deserve it. I don't know how to attain it for myself. Give it to me, please, oh God. Verse 5. Last one we're going to deal with this morning. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Three things, three truths about God that really attack these lies. First, God is good. I want you to preach that to yourself this week, this month, this year. God is good. What does it mean that God is good? I didn't plan on this, but I don't want this to be rhetorical. I want you to answer me. What does it mean that God is good? Give me a a philosophical answer. Give me a specific answer. What does it mean? How has God shown up to be good? How is God good? What is good? Everything that he's working is right, whether I perceive it or not. Absolutely. That's a great definition of the goodness of God. He wants what's best for me. That's exactly right. That defeats exactly one of those lies. I don't believe that you have my best interest in mind. If God is good, that defeats that lie. Absolutely. A couple weeks ago when we were in Mexico, I experienced the goodness of God. I watched a man who had given his life to serving a city. Um, We'll talk about this on the family meeting, but we didn't say it then. Uh, Juan Carlos, the pastor of the church in Mexico that we connected with, had an offer to go pastor a church in Dallas and make like $35,000, $40,000 a year and uh, have a house, health insurance, car, all that stuff given to him. He said, no, God has me in Acuna. Watching the goodness of God present in that man and in the way he parents his, his son and daughter was profound. Watching the goodness of God in other people. What else? Give me something specific. We've had philosophical answers. Give me something specific. How has God been good in your life? That's perfect. Thank you, Christine. When, he, when I fail, he's still there. God is good. Part of writing these things on our heart, part of meditating on these things, part of praying these things, connecting with them, thanking them, allowing them to be the truth that defeats the lies, is to look for them. Think about that phrase all week long, God is good. And then maybe have a journal where you write down things that you notice where God was good today. And praise him for it. Give him glory for it. God is good. But I think better than that, God is forgiving. Uh, I did a lot of study a couple of months ago on this idea of of forgiving, and I bumped into uh, an article by Tim Keller on forgiveness. And by the way, if you have your bulletin, there's a a web address to that article. You can type that into your uh, URL address and and read this article. Um, But uh, he says three things about forgiveness. Forgiveness is canceled debt. Forgiveness means giving up the right to seek payment for a wrong. 
Forgiveness is voluntary suffering. Before we deal with those specifically, I want to give a, a, a little story about a friend of mine. Um, his mother-in-law spilled water on his computer this week. Completely fried it, like a $1,500 computer. Dead because of something that his mother-in-law did. I don't know the story behind what happened. All I know is his mother-in-law spilled water on his computer and now it's dead. And he said to me, dude, I'm really frustrated. Like, it really bothers me. I don't know what to do. I want to forgive her, but it's hard. So forgiveness in that setting is going to cost my friend. Right? Because if he really forgives her, he's still out of computer. Because the, the way to make that situation right is for mother-in-law to buy my friend a computer, right? But if he's going to really forgive her, it's going to cost him a $1,500 computer. This is what forgiveness is. A lot of times we think about God and forgiveness and that it's not really costing him much because he's got everything anyway and Jesus and whatever, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, forgiveness, real forgiveness costs the forgiver. It costs Jesus his life. And it's ours. For you, O Lord, are good and you are forgiving. Think about forgiveness. Think about full forgiveness. Think about it. Spend time this week with this word forgiveness. And what does it mean? Like the first four pages of my current journal is just thinking about forgiveness. I looked it up in a dictionary, like four different dictionaries, and wrote it down. I Google searched forgiveness and think those things about what it means and then attach those things to God and think about what they mean with God in terms of God and how I know God and, and how they relate to other pieces of Scripture. Think about forgiveness and then breathe it. Full forgiveness, canceled debt, giving up the right to seek payment, restoration that brings relationship. A lack of forgiveness brings stress. No one wants to be, if, if there's something between you and somebody else, and there's a, a hardship, a difficulty between two people, do you, ever, do you want to be around that? You probably know somebody who, who has a hard time forgiving. You probably know somebody who has a hard time forgiving somebody specifically for something. Do you ever want to be in their room when those two are in a room together? It's ugly. A lack of forgiveness is ugly, but it's ours. We hold it. It's what God has given to us. And partial forgiveness is probably even worse. But God offers full forgiveness. And then the last part of this psalm, uh, 86.5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. This word, you guys know that steadfast love is something that I just, we wrote a song about it, and, and it's just something that always is in my mind and in my brain. But this idea here, you are abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast love is love that doesn't change and doesn't need to change to give you your full and complete joy, and God is abounding in that. And I thought about this idea this week. You guys know that, that uh, Hostess Donuts are back? Yep. They're back. Yes. I thought about abounding in terms of this, all right? You open a brand new bag of Hostess Donuts, and there's like, I don't know how many in there, like 25, 30, something like that. Who knows? Little bitty dudes, right? And 
like Mia loves these and she's so excited that Hostess Donuts are back. And I got some at the store and brought some home and she was so excited and like we opened them and had a few. When, when you open the bag of donuts, you're like, wow, there's so many in here. I can have like a bunch, right? And, and you won't even realize it. But when there's down to like three, man, I'm only going to have one because I want to have one, save one for tomorrow. Or for us, Mia sometimes has these things like for breakfast or for like dessert and she wants to have two. So I never want to eat. If there's two left, that means I don't get any because I'm going to save them for her. If there's three left, that means I get one. But if I open a brand new bag, like I can have like six. Like six of them come in a, in a little individual packets. And so you never want to have really more than that. Unless, <laughs> unless, unless of course, your, your wife isn't home and you have like, I thought this was a whole bag yesterday. Well, you make some story up. <laughs> but the point is that when it comes to the, the and that's, that's just silly, and I, I debated a silly illustration at the close of a sermon, but it's, it's perfect. Abounding in steadfast love is like there's always plenty. There's always plenty. The steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases. There's always, always plenty. You're never going to go to that bag and there's only going to be three. It's always plenty. And it's silly, but think about that. When you open up a bag of something and there's a bunch of them there, think about abounding in steadfast love. And let that just rest with you. This holy God that we get the privilege to serve and love, filled with grace, filled with mercy, filled with goodness, filled with forgiveness, offering it freely to us, abounding in steadfast love. He's been giving out his steadfast love for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And that bag is still completely full. You can't get to the end of it. Let's pray and worship that wonderful God. God, you are holy and perfect and wonderful. You are good. You are forgiving. You are gracious. You are kind. You are mighty. You are holy. God, I pray. God, I pray fervently now that you would give each of us a phrase from your truth, from your Aletheia unchanging truth to hold on to this week, God. God, give us each a phrase about who you are that defeats the lies that the enemy gives to us and just allow it to be in our brains forever. Be gracious to me. You are good. You are forgiving. You abound in steadfast love. God, we trust you. We ask of you to burn that into our souls. Gladden our souls, O oh God. For I am poor and needy. I'm a man who's thrown myself onto your grace and your mercy. Father, you are great and mighty and awesome. God, guide us as we respond to you. In Christ's name, amen.